We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in just a minute. I want you to go ahead and turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, if you don't have a Bible, our ushers are going to bring some down the aisles that you can use today. Actually, that you can have. So if you need a Bible to read today as we read 1 Corinthians 13, just wave at them. If you don't have a Bible or you don't know where yours is, just keep this one. Put your name in it. It's our gift to you. Um, and we hope you take it home and, and read even more things um, that are within it. We start a brand new series today called A Season of Hope. As we move into this Christmas season, Thanksgiving season, New Year's season, this holiday time in our country, we're moving spiritually to focus on hope, this word hope. Um, and let me give you an illustration from my life that, um, to kind of set up this series a little bit because maybe some of you this morning, when I say the word hope, it doesn't connect with your spirit at all. Um, so I grew up in a, in a pretty small town in southern Ohio um, and the roads that I drove growing up are, are, are a lot different than most of the roads um, around Kansas City. So I got my driver's license on my 16th birthday, uh, 16th birthday, February 4th, 1994. My dad took me to the DMV. I took my test. Um, I got my license, and it was snowing like crazy in southern Ohio that day, but he let me drive home anyway. So my first day of driving with a license um, was through like a driving snowstorm about 30 miles home. Um, but I probably drove for two years before I drove like on a highway, like that I had to exit onto, or that I had to like get onto and merge or exit off of, because I just lived in a small farming community. In every road that I lived on, they were all 55 mile per hour, two lane roads um, with a ditch on either side and usually a, a cornfield. I mean, that was, that was what the way that I grew up driving. And I'll never forget when I got my license, my dad telling me, there's two things you need to know that will keep you safe driving in our community. Because if the speed limit is 55, I may have driven a little faster than that every now and then. Um, but with always a, a car coming at me in a ditch waiting on the side of the road. So dad said, here's two things I want you to remember uh, the rest of your life. And I have remembered these the, my entire life. I've taught them to Danielle. I'll teach them to my kids um, when they drive. He said, first, because we lived in a small town that was a hunting community. Um, dad said, if you're going down the road at 55, 60, 65 miles an hour um, and an animal jumps in front of you, just hit it. Just don't, don't swerve, don't break, um, just hit it. Just go right through it. Uh, as a principal in that community for 30 years, he'd seen far more people be injured or killed trying to avoid animals than running through them. So he said, we can fix the car, just go through them. Um, he said, secondly, if you forever, if you ever for some reason would get distracted and you'd find yourself kind of kind of leaning towards the shoulder of the road and you hear the car catch gravel, like you're driving and you realize you've gone off the side of the road. He said, whatever you do, do not jerk the steering wheel back onto the road. He said, just pull off the gas, slowly stay on the shoulder. And he said, once you've slowed down, come on. Because he said, again, Christian, I've seen more people hurt by overcorrecting to get back on the road than just by slowly driving into a ditch. So those are two lessons that I never forgot from my dad. I taught Danielle that and she's destroyed a couple cars that way. Like I, I think like she, she targets animals now. She'll just like drive and like, no, don't, don't target them. But like, if you can't avoid them, just hit them. But don't, you know, don't be swerving to kill a bunny. That, you know, no one wants to do that. Um, but one of, these, one of these lessons I realized I did not apply to my spiritual life a few years ago. 2006 to 2009 uh, were some of the darkest years of my spiritual existence. I experienced more spiritual failure in those two or three years. I experienced more spiritual discouragement in those two or three years. Um, and I questioned God more in those couple years than in my entire faith life combined. I, I had been kind of just flying down the highway of life 
trust in God, believing in God, um, doing pretty well spiritually. And all of a sudden, some of the promises that I'd always been told and always believed weren't coming true in the manner that I understood them to come true. I was giving, but I wasn't being blessed financially. I was actually hurting financially while I was tithing. That threw me off a little bit. Um, I thought, you know, if you get married and you come to church every Sunday, that your marriage will be strong and, you know, it's just easy. If if you both love God, marriage is easy. That that wasn't the fact. Um, You know, you think if you just raise your kids in church, they'll catch it and love God and they'll be fine. That, That wasn't happening. I was reading my Bible every day. But sometimes I felt very distant. I was praying for things, and prayers weren't being answered. Just things around me were, were going wrong at a rate that hadn't happened in my life at that pace before. Um, and as I began to drive down the road of faith, I, I really had two options. I thought, I can just ditch the whole thing and just be done spiritually. And I thought about that. I really did. I thought, you know, I don't want to give up on God, but I don't know that I want to be in ministry. The church stuff, it just wasn't hitting my heart anymore. And I thought, you know, I may just ditch this thing and do something else. Or I could... Or I could try to just reroute myself back onto the road and keep living for God and keep trying to serve God. But I got to get out of this rut. And what happened is when I tried to stay on the road spiritually, I overcorrected across probably what I understood the spiritual life to be. And I ended up crossing the road, flipping my car spiritually. And I, and I ended up in the other ditch, um, upside down, with a heart that was very broken spiritually. As a matter of fact, I adopted for several years probably the worst verse in the Bible to have be your life verse. Like this was the verse that I claimed meant more to me than any other verse in the Bible. You don't have to look it up. It's Job thirteen fifteen. It says this, even if God kills me, I'll trust him. Like that's where I was spiritually. That's the most depressing verse in the entire Bible. It's like, hey, tell me about your relationship with God. Well, even if he kills me, um, I guess I'll trust him. What had happened is I'd lost all hope. I had lost the belief that following God could lead or would lead to anything good in my future. And I adopted kind of a theology of, I I do believe that God exists and I love God, Um, but maybe I've been asking too much of him, so I'm going to follow God, but I am going to expect nothing in return. And I kind of had the opposite of the Grinch who, you know, his heart grew 10 times the size um, when, when the people in Whoville were nice to him. My heart during that period shrunk like 10 times the size that it was spiritually. And I became a Christian who lived life without any expectation of God ever doing anything good in my life. And I want to tell you what God began to do in my heart a year ago, literally a year ago, as a Christian who'd lost hope, who was still following God, but without any hope in their life. I want to show you what God did to me. And he started in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is a passage, it's actually about love. Um, but the conclusion of this passage in 1 Corinthians 13, maybe some of you had this read at their wedding, is powerful. And it shows us the power of hope in the Christian life as we lean into a season of hope. It's my, it's my prayer today that God will maybe begin to speak to your heart in the next six weeks like it took him six years to do in my life. Here's what 1 Corinthians 13 says. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but I don't have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge and I have a faith that can move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but don't have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered and it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. It always protects 
It always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they'll be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Verse 13. And now these three remain, faith and hope and love. But the greatest of these is love. You know, it's interesting that the Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, that said the things you need to get you from where you are spiritually to one day with Jesus spiritually, the bridges of your life that are going to move you from where you are to where you need to be one day in eternity, there's really only three major pillars in this bridge. Faith and hope and love. And the reality was I was a Christian that had two out of three. And you may have heard the phrase two out of three ain't bad, but I want to tell you two out of three ain't good when it comes to spiritual things. And in the last year, God has opened this massive picture to me that I have been a Christian. I have been a pastor. I've been a father. I've been a husband who's lived with very little hope in my life. And let me tell you what happened. It's been the busiest year of my life. Um, And I, I can say that like nothing, there's not even a close second. I just look back in my journal between January 1 of this year and December 31 of this year, I will have spent 95 days on the road doing ministry somewhere in the world. In the last year, I've spent six weeks on the mission field with 48 different people from our church, two weeks in Kenya and a month in Israel, two weeks in May with a group of 12, two weeks, just the last two weeks um, with a group of 18. It's been massively busy. But God has used those times to get my attention. And never more so than a year ago this month on a flight from uh, Qatar to Nairobi, Kenya through the middle of the night when if you haven't traveled internationally, you don't know what day it is, you don't know what time it is, you're awake at night, you're asleep during the day. So I was having one of those moments where we were flying, I didn't know what time it was, not sure what day it was, but we're flying from Qatar to Nairobi and everyone else is asleep and I'm wide awake and I thought I should probably go ahead and get my, my Bible reading done for the day because I try to read my Bible every day. So I pulled out my Bible and I was just, do, I was just doing my, my routine, just my standard stuff. Three to five chapters, I'm in the book of Psalms and as I'm reading on that, that plane filled with Kenyans and a few American missionaries, I read across Psalm chapter 33 verse 18 and like God grabbed my heart, I stopped. Here's what Psalm 33 18 says, but the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love. Now let me say this before I speak to that verse. I am a deal maker with God. I don't know about you, I am. If God says in scripture, do this and you'll be blessed, I do that because I trust God. So if God says, do this, I'll bless you, I I do that. I I try to make deals with God. I'm also aware of the eyes of the Lord verses in scripture. Say, what are those? Several places in scripture where the Bible says God is looking for this. And when he sees that, he does something. So every time I see an eyes of the Lord verse, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the entire seeking to strengthen. Every time I see an eyes of the Lord verse, I stop and say, wait a minute, I want God to see me from the rainbow to what's written in 2 Chronicles. What do I need to do? And I read this verse and for one of the first times, it was like God spoke to my heart and said, Christian, I want you to know every day I look for this on planet earth and you've not been in this line. What was the verse? Psalm 33, 18. The eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him on those whose hope is in his unfailing love. It was like God became Santa Claus and said, Christian, I've been making a list. I've checked it twice. I've been looking for people on planet Earth who who are living with hope. And Christian, you're you're not on the list. 
Christian, I've got this room full of people that, that I'm waiting to come into contact with in a brand new way because they're living with hope. Christian, you're not in, you're not in that room. I've got this line full of people like, like at an amusement park waiting to ride a ride. And Christian, I've looked all the way down through the line for those people who have hope in their life. And Christian, you're not, you're not on the list. And what's crazy is I had faith. I had a, I had a deep faith. I had a wounded faith. So it was, it was a strong faith. I had a tremendous love of God and the things of God. But I had no hope. And two out of three, I found out, ain't good in Christianity. As a matter of fact, I realized I couldn't even say a child's prayer honestly. Did any of you grow up hearing the prayer that you, you said at mealtimes? God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. I mean, it doesn't really rhyme. I mean, it's almost the same. I'm not sure why they, why they teach it. Um, but, but, you know, I had grown up saying, God is great. God is good. Let us say, I knew God was great. I wasn't sure God was good anymore. And I, I really, it, it didn't make me angry. I, um, I didn't have a theological problem with that. I didn't even believe it was unfair. I got into a place in my theology where I felt like God had rescued me. So I didn't, I didn't have any right to really ask him for anything. Um, and I was resolved to live for God just without hope. I had overcorrected my Christian life and ended up in the ditch of somebody resolved to do everything he could for God without an ounce of hope that my future was brighter, that God was there. And I found myself for a period of about six years in desperate trouble seeking for hope and only being alerted to this fact on an airplane trip from the Middle East to the middle of Africa. And here's what I found out that I want to begin to teach you this week and then I'm going to teach all the way through Christmas, our Christmas Eve service. Number one, here's what I found out. Living without hope is a spiritual disease. It's one that I had. Get this, it's one that I have. Living without hope is a spiritual disease. Proverbs 13, 12 says this, hope deferred, hope not realized. Someone who has run out of hope, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Some of you are in here and your heart is sick today with a disease called hopelessness because you don't have any more hope for your marriage. You have faith in God, you love him a lot. But your hope for that kind of gone away. You don't have any hope financially. You're hopeless. You have faith in God, you love God, but you don't have hope there anymore. You don't have, you don't have hope in the world. You see things happening in Paris and Mali and Israel where we just were. You say, man, the world is hopeless. Like, it's just everyone's killing everyone. Some of you are here and you have a disease, a spiritual disease in your heart called hopelessness. You say, well, Christian, I have faith and I have love. Isn't that good enough? I don't believe that two out of three is good enough when it comes to the pillars of faith that get you from where you are to connecting with Jesus one day in eternity. So I began to pray in Kenya that God would help me find hope. It's interesting. God showed me hope before he gave me hope because I'm reading that verse on the way to Kenya and I even told our missions team before we started the trip, we, we always have this question every time I'm on the mission field, why, why are you here? Why do you want to come? And everyone answers their question and, and, and I basically said, let me tell you what I'm looking for. On the plane right over, God showed me I've been living without hope. So I'm hoping something over here will show me how to have hope again. And I saw it. I saw it in the eyes of those orphans in the mountains of Northwest Kenya who have nothing but Jesus. I saw it in their smiles. 
So I thought, okay, hope is not something you understand intellectually. Hope is something you have intrinsically. Hope is something you see in people, not really that you hear from this. So God showed me a picture of hope was, uh, uh, showed me a picture of what hope was. But as I tried to learn how to experience that over the course of the next year, I ended up in Israel last week. And God showed me, Christian, you're still not there. And let me tell you what happened. The first place we go when people get off the plane and they fly to Israel is the Valley of Elah. I think we've got a picture of it. This is where David killed Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And we take our, our people, it's 20 minutes or so from the airport, and, and we drive down past Beit Shan and, or, uh, towards Bet Shemesh, and we pull into the Valley of Elam. We get out. David and the army of Israel would have been on this mountain near us. us. The, the Philistines would have been on the other side. This major battle in 1 Samuel 17 and 18 would have happened there. And there's a little stream that runs just south of the hill that you can see we took that picture on, and it has stones in it. And the Bible says that David took five smooth stones from that stream and he went and he killed the giant. So I always tell our people, pick, pick up some stones. You should actually pick up five. This, this is one that I took from there. Um, and I say take five stones. And then a lot of them, they, they kind of get some stones for friends or family. So I said, here's what I want you to do this year. I've never done this before. But I said, I want you to get as many rocks as you want, as you can carry, as you can check through security at the airport. But then after you have gotten all you need, I need you to get four from me. We're going to use them to remember some things spiritually this year. I had no idea this lesson was going to be more for me than it was for them. So they got all their rocks, they got their extras for me, and we had brought some Sharpies. And they came on the, at, at the end of that trip when we gathered, and I said, now here's what I want you to do. This valley is the place giants come to die. And every one of you right now is facing some kind of giant in your life. Relationally, physically, emotionally, financially, spiritually, there's something in your life that you wake up to every day. This is the place where giants come to die. So I want you to take a rock from the Valley of Elah, and I want you to take a Sharpie, and I want you to write the first letter of what that giant is that you're facing. And then we're going to kind of just leave one at a time, and I want you slowly to walk out of here. I want you to say a prayer, and I want you to throw this rock as far as you can in this valley because giants come here to die. And for the rest of your life, when you think about this giant you're facing, I want you to think about this valley where you said, no, this giant dies in my life spiritually. And the letter that I wrote on my rock was F. Stood for fear because I believed up until the moment that I threw the rock that my greatest spiritual giant was fear. The things I face in life as a dad, the things I face in life as a husband, the things I face in life as a pastor, as a, as a leader to people who come to our church. Um, I, I just am always afraid I'm going to get it wrong. I'm afraid of what the next step holds and that it, it won't go well. So I, I wrote an F on my rock and as we're walking out, I just throw the thing as far as I can in the Valley of Elon. I'm walking all by myself alongside the road there to go back to our vans. And God speaks to me and he said, you wrote, you wrote the wrong letter on your rock. Your problem is not fear. As a matter of fact, the last year you've made some of the most courageous spiritual decisions that you have ever made. Your problem is no longer fear. Your problem is trust. Because what happens is you're willing to step out in faith and make a decision, but then you worry about that decision all day, every night. You go to bed thinking about it. You wake up worrying about it. What you've shown is you don't trust me because you don't hope that I'm good. You don't have hope that I got you. And your problem is not fear. Your problem is trust because you still don't have hope. You see, there's a difference between having the courage to live in faith and the peace that comes from living in hope. You say, well, Christian, how do I know if my heart has the disease of hopelessness? Do you have peace? Because when you have hope, you have peace. And when you don't have peace, something is lacking. There, there's a tension in your life that doesn't hope in the goodness and in the power of God in your life. And for me, I'm not sure that this spiritual disease is curable, but I believe it's treatable. 
I don't know that we can get to the place where our heart never doubts, where our heart never questions, where we don't experience hopelessness in a world that has so many bad things happen. But I know it's treatable. In the next five weeks, I want to try to teach you what I've learned in the last five years about hope. Next Sunday, we're going to talk about God's plan to regain hope for those of us who may have lost a little hope somewhere along the way. On December 6th, Clayton King is going to be here, and he's going to be speaking a message called Stronger. We've actually made invite cards for this Sunday because we want people to come and hear Clayton. His mom and dad died within 18 months of each other, and within a period of three years, nine of his relatives died. He preached every one of their funerals. And at the end of those three years, he lost hope. And what God did in his life, he's put into a message that he's going to bring us. It's going to be incredible. Those of you who know Clayton, who have been here, you know God is going to move. You need to invite people to come with you. But that day, we're going to see hope in the midst of hurt. On December 13th, we're going to look at the conditions of life for finding hope. Some of you are living without hope because you're not putting yourself and your family in the right positions. We're going to talk about that. On December 20, we're going to talk about the results of living with hope. What does a life look like that is birthed in and lived through hope day in and day out? And on Christmas Eve at the John Knox Pavilion at 5 p.m., we're going to have one big service together a Christmas Eve communion type of service to celebrate what Christmas really means, but I'm going to talk to you about the hope of Christmas. And I'm going to talk about a man who, even when he was with Jesus, and Jesus said, would you like me to do this for you? He said, I just, I don't think that's possible. Someone with no hope who intersected his life with Jesus and found hope. We're going to celebrate this Christmas season as a season of hope, and we're going to learn, starting with me, how to have hope again Because two out of three, you say, I got faith, I got love. Two out of three ain't good in the Christian life. You have to have hope. Number two, we see spiritually living with hope is important for you. But it's also important for others. Having hope is not just something that allows you to sleep better at life and function with with an expectation in your future. Living with hope is actually something that's for others. Do you know the Bible says hope is a spiritual sign? Your hope in your life is a sign to other people of who Jesus is. Romans 5, 3 through 5 says it this. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. I don't know about you, But my life has not always agreed with that verse that hope doesn't disappoint. I've been disappointed. I feel at times in my life I've been disappointed by God and a promise of Scripture not fulfilled in the timing that I would like it to be fulfilled. And slowly, hope disappointed so many times that I thought, forget you. I don't need you anymore. I'll do it with faith and love. And God said, Christian, that's a spiritual disease that you can't do. And hope is not just for you. It's for people who are looking for me. The Apostle Paul says, we also glory. What does that mean, also glory? You know the word glory means to put something on display? It means to make something look good. To put something on a podium or a platform, to make it look grand. Basically, the Apostle Paul is saying, the thing that makes Jesus attractive in your life is your hope. The thing that makes people look at you and want to meet Jesus, it's your hope. Listen, there are tribulations. No one cares about your tribulations. Everyone has tribulations. There's, there's perseverance. Nobody cares about your perseverance. They gotta get through their own stuff. There's character. People aren't really clapping a whole lot for Christian character in our world. That's not really their thing. But when you get to hope, everyone said, how'd you do that? I want that. I need that. Paul said, our glory, the thing in our life that makes Jesus look grand, is hope. 
And Christians are supposed to show off their faith through their hope. So you can imagine when my study of hope said the thing in me that makes Jesus attractive is hope and I decided to leave it on the side of the road five years ago, you can imagine how God smacked me in the face not only as a Christian but as a spiritual leader probably producing an entire church full of people that hope wasn't very important to them. A church full of people who have deep faith and great love without hope are not very attractive to the world because our hope is the sign. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the what? I can't hear you. For the hope. For the hope that you have. Peter said they're not going to ask questions about your tribulations. They're dealing with their own. They're not going to ask questions about your perseverance. They're trying to get through their own. They're not even going to ask questions about your character because they may or may not agree with it. But if you have hope, they're going to ask you about that. And when hope is the question, Jesus is the answer. Some of you are saying, Christian, nobody ever asked me about my faith. Maybe it's because they've never seen your hope. Just a thought, according to 1 Peter 3.15. You see, it's, it's, it's like a relay race where the anchor leg is hope. For those of you who have run a relay race or you've seen how it works, one runner starts out, and whether it's 100 or 200 or 400, they kind of complete the first lap, and, and, and then they have to hand a baton to someone. And it's, it's like tribulations have a season in your life where they have to run their course. And then after tribulation has run their course, it gets in that passing zone and it hands to perseverance. It's okay, the next lap of your race is perseverance, go. And then perseverance's second leg takes off running until perseverance has built something in you spiritually. And when persevering time is done, perseverance hands off to character and it's like, go. And character goes and it runs its race until it's built within it a hope of who Jesus is and what Jesus has planned for you. And then character hands off to hope and guess what? Hope gets to be the anchor leg. Hope gets to be the one being cheered for down the stretch. Hope gets to be the one splashed across the paper when it finishes. Hope gets to be the exciting one who is the last one celebrated in front of everyone. And my life ran a relay race where literally tribulations ran their course. Perseverance ran its course. Character ran its course. And then it got in the passing lane and tried to pass the baton to hope. And it's like hope said, nope, we ain't going to run. So for five years, I had character and hope kind of in, in, in the 20-meter passing lane, and it was like character saying, go, and hope was saying, nope. Go, like kicking me in the tail. Take the baton. Nope. You know what? Because I didn't want to be disappointed anymore. Hope had disappointed me. Hope had disappointed me, so I said, Lord, I don't want to run in hope anymore. I don't want to have to cross the finish line in hope anymore. I've had it disappoint me enough times that I might just quit running the race. If, if hope can't finish, I don't want to run the race anymore. And it's like character and hope have been wrestling in my soul, this Christian character that God, God has developed in me, trying to break the spirit of hopelessness that somehow partnered with it so that they can push me out of the passing zone and get hope to start, even if it's one step at a time, at least walking the race for me spiritually. If you want somebody to ask you about your faith, you've got to show them your hope. Because hope is not just for you. Hope is important for you. Hope is important for me. But hope is important for the world who's looking for Jesus. Hope is important for you to show the world that needs to see Jesus. And what I've realized again this week is that hope is always tied to trust. And trust is always tied to Jesus. And I learned something this week that I've known in many areas in my life outside of spiritual areas. And it's, it's, it's really kind of planted a seed in my life that I hope leads to transformation. Hebrews 10.23 says this, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope 
that we professed. For he who promised is faithful. You know what Hebrews 10.23 tells me? Hope is a he. Hope is a person, not a feeling. Hope is a person, not an emotion. Hope is, hope is a person, not a circumstance or a consequence in our life. Hebrews 10.23 says, Hold unswervingly to hope for he who promised is faithful. And here's what I know experientially. If you have Jesus, you have hope. I know that. But you only experience hope if you're constantly experiencing Jesus. And it's only when we begin to partner in our life with Jesus and walk with Jesus. If you have Jesus, you have hope. But sometimes you only feel hope if you feel Jesus. Sometimes you only experience hope if you experience Jesus. And this week, this became so clear in Israel again by the testimony of one of our people who was there. Because every day we'd go around to these sites where Jesus was, where Jesus did ministry, where Jesus died and rose again. And we would experience Jesus. And it would give us tremendous hope. It was unbelievable. To hear people every night, the question was, what was your favorite thing today and why? And people would talk about their favorite things and why. We went to Nazareth one day. They've got a new museum in Nazareth with oil lamps and pottery that they've uncovered from Nazareth from the first century, which means when Mary and Joseph and Jesus were living there, people were living there and they were making these things and they found these dating from that time period. And it was just unbelievable. We drove from Nazareth to the Sea of Galilee, which is one of the prettiest places on planet Earth. This was taken with a cell phone. This is what it looks like there. This is where Jesus would have done his ministry. It's where he would have walked on water. It's where he would have calmed the wind and the waves. It's where twice he would have told the disciples how to have a miraculous catch of fish. And you go to the Sea of Galilee, and man, you just experience Jesus. We went to Capernaum where Peter and James and John and, and Andrew, their brother, lived. We went to this ancient city where Jesus did one of his first miracles, healing Peter's mother-in-law who was sick, where he taught in the synagogues. This synagogue is built exactly on top of the first century synagogue where Jesus would have taught so often about who he was and what he was going to do. And you sit in Capernaum and you have hope because you experienced Jesus. We went to the Jordan River and we baptized everyone on the trip where Jesus was baptized who had not yet been baptized on the Jordan River. And it was just an unbelievable experience. And we're sitting in our group meeting one night. What was your favorite thing and why? And one of the young gals on our trip who married one of our elder's daughters who's from Texas but came with us, said, you know, I was sitting out on the Sea of Galilee today. There's these big boulders where you can kind of just sit right outside the gates of Capernaum and just listen to the Sea of Galilee, kind of lick the shore, winds blowing. It's just beautiful. And she said, I was sitting there experiencing Jesus. And it was like Jesus said, you're not experiencing me because you're here. You're experiencing me because you're finally aware. Because the reality is I am as real in your home as I am on the Sea of Galilee. And I am as, I'm with you as much in your car driving to work as I am when you're in Nazareth. And I'm with you in the difficult moments of work the exact same level that I'm with you when you're on a boat out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is saying, it's your awareness of me that's leading to your experience of me, that's leading to your hope in me. It's not where you are, it's what you're aware of and what you're experiencing. I mean, this girl spoke this to the group, and we were all like, man, she's right. I mean, she was just giving us a sermon in 60 seconds. And it was like, she's right. We have an experience problem, not a geography problem with Jesus. Because the same Jesus you feel on the Sea of Galilee is in your bedroom every night, and he's in your car every day on the way to work. And I began, as we were on this trip, I began to say to Jesus, Jesus, I know my next step is hope. 
but I'm, I'm not sure how I'm, I'm going to get there. It sure seems slow to me. And Jesus said, Christian, experiencing me, experiencing relationship in life with me is the exact same as every type of relationship you have in life. In relationships and growth in any area of life, they all have to evolve. They all have to keep moving. I mean, all of us know if, if you're training for a marathon and you run the exact same amount on your last day of training as you ran for your first day of training, you're not going to be ready. You have to get going. Anyone who's lifted weights knows if you're still doing the exact same amount of reps with the exact same weight today as a year from now, you're not going to grow. Things evolve and change. You have to push harder in anything in life. Just think about relationships. For those of you who are married, or for those of us who can go back to maybe our elementary or middle school days, you remember the first time you ever held somebody's hand? How exhilarating that was? How nerve-wracking that was? Sitting in a movie theater or on somebody's couch. I mean, you remember how much you were sweating looking at their arm trying to figure out, are they, you know, if they place this in an area, do they want me to hold their hand? Do they not want me to hold their hand? You've already asked their friends and made big plans to hold hands that night. And then you kind of send out the pinky just to see. It's like, itsy bitsy pinky goes across the little armrest, Right? And you see them moving their arm and like your pinkies make contact and it is like a jolt of lightning to your body that you've never felt before in your life. It's like that is the greatest thing on planet earth. You hold hands and they're all sweaty and it's just awkward but it's awesome at the same time. It doesn't stay the same. Does it feel that way every time you reach over and hold hands with your spouse? It changes. You remember your first kiss? I mean, was I the only one who almost had a heart attack the first time you kissed someone? You remember how, how fast your heart beats? The thoughts going through your head, do I turn right or do I turn left? Are we going to break each other's teeth? I mean, how does this work? Are they going to turn away? I mean, you, you remember those moments? And now you kiss hello and goodbye, and it means nothing. Can you imagine if a, if a married couple came to you and said, Christian, I just don't feel close to my spouse anymore. And I said, why? And you said, the electricity is just not there when we hold hands. I mean, all of us would say, you know, dude, you you got to evolve a little bit. You know, when we kiss, it's just not the same. you you got to get deeper in your relationship. And some of us say, you know, I just don't feel close to you. I don't feel the way that I felt when I got, when I got saved that Sunday I walked forward. Well, of course. you got to move forward in your relationship. One of the things that God revealed to me is, is that I have grown comfortable in, in the faith life and routines that I've already built, but it's led me not to feel God as much. We're underneath the city of David with Bob Cornuke and Ellie Shukran, who's the head of archaeology in Israel. And we're looking at this site that is brand new to discovery. We're in an open archaeological dig site. And this guy's explaining how he's done what he's done. They've carved out a section that's smaller than this stage. And one of the guys on our team said, how long did it take to do this? And he said, we've been digging for 12 years. And it was like, oh my goodness. And someone said, why did it take so long? And he said, see the steel beams on the ceiling? Because we were underneath the mountain. And he said, the whole mountain is on top of us. So literally, he said, I, look at the length of my arm. Because he led the dig. So he stuck his arm out and he said, literally, every time we dug this far, we had to stop and refortify the entire thing. Or it would have come down. So he said, our progress has been one arm length at a time, one small bucket at a time. And then we fortify it and we can go in and out past this place. Yeah, I've been struggling lately, wondering why I haven't been hearing from God as much when I read my Bible. I told our group this year marked the sixth year, and this week marked the sixth year anniversary. November 17th, 2009, I made a commitment that I was going to spend time with God every day. 
God on October 23, 2009 had spoken into my heart the vision for this church. But he said, Christian, you can't be a pastor until you're a better Christian. You don't spend enough time with God. So I, I committed on November 17, 2009 to spend 40 days in the Word of God and not miss a day. Since that time, it's been six years now, I've missed one day. July 4, 2013, I fell asleep and did not spend time with God. It's become such a routine that I don't hear from God as much reading my Bible as, as I used to. And when I say, you know, God, where have you gone? God said, that'd be like a married couple saying, you know, I just don't, when we hold hands, it just doesn't feel as electric. He said, Christian, a long time ago, you put up that barricade. That one's done. Now you got to reach deeper. I remember last year, God was calling me to pray. So I started praying. And in the first 40 days of prayer, my gosh, God did so many things. And then, it, and then I got into the routine. And I thought, you know, God, I don't feel like you're answering my prayers as much anymore. And God said, Christian, you've built that, for, that that's, that's now like, oh, that gateway's open forever for you. But you've got to push deeper to experience me more. I've been trying to figure out why the last few years I sense God so much more on the mission field than I do at home. And it's because God says on the mission field, you're going deeper. You're taking more sacrifices. You know, I've tithed 10% of everything that's ever come into my life because my mom and dad drilled that into my head. And recently, I wasn't seeing... Uh, great miracles happen out of tithing. It had become routine for me. I was like, God, you know, I'm giving. Why aren't you blessing me? And then the building campaign came along, and I gave more than I really could. And it was like I dug out a new area of faith for myself, and God started doing more things in my life. It's literally like, though, for hope, it's like I've had a spoon, and for a year, I've been taking one little shovel full of dirt away at a time, trying to press it deeper in my relationship with God to find hope that is so desperately needed in my life and in my ministry. Some of you say, Christian, I'm not experiencing hope because I'm not experiencing Jesus. And I've read my Bible. Well, guess what? Maybe it's time to do more. Maybe it's time to memorize a verse. Oh, I memorize verses. Maybe it's time to memorize a book. Say, Christian, I've been praying. Maybe it's time to pray on your knees. Maybe it's time to fast. Say, Christian, I've been giving. Maybe it's time to give more. You say, Christian, you know, I've been serving at church. Maybe it's time to serve on the mission field. You see, when we experience Jesus, we experience hope. But you can't do what you've always done. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way in the gym. It doesn't work that way in your life. It doesn't work that way in your marriage. And it doesn't work that way with Jesus. You've got to push now to the next level. Solidify what has been and keep pushing through your tunnel of faith. The reality is our spiritual life is supposed to be one giant three-legged race. You ever done a three-legged race where you're strapped to somebody else either with a bag or with your legs tied together and it's like you can't move unless you're together you can't move unless you're coordinated but once you get coordinated you can move pretty quick it's like the bible is saying if you want to attach your life to hope attach your life to jesus and no matter what you run across no matter what obstacle that comes no matter what mountaintop that comes no matter what valley that comes if you are attached to jesus you are attached to hope if you are experiencing jesus you are experiencing hope because us and Jesus, along with anything and everything we ever face or that gets laid upon us, if we're attached to Jesus, we can have hope. When we're tied to Jesus, we're tied to hope. Do you have hope today? If you're struggling with that question, my prayer is that by the time you go to bed on Christmas Eve, you will have entered a season of hope that has trans transformed your life like nothing else. Let's pray together.